everybody, welcome to the 62nd episode of our World News Podcast. This podcast, along with all of our other episodes, are part of Atlas News. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the journal's bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Also, please consider supporting us at Patreon at patreon.com slash analyzeeducate, or you could buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash analyzeeducate as well. Any support you guys throw our way, we very much appreciate. All right, and lastly, it is very hot outside. I got my front door open, so hopefully the cars on the main street right outside my apartment aren't too loud for you guys. Um, With that being said, we'll get into the news. All right, hopping right in. You guys have helped us reach over 22,000 downloads on Spotify and over 1,400 followers. We appreciate that very much. It was a very busy week this past week. Got a lot of big stories to cover, so let's just hop into it. Looking at the South Caucasus, speaking about the situation between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan and ethnic Armenians in the region of Nagorno-Karabakh. The vast majority of ethnic Armenians have left Nagorno-Karabakh, according to Artsakh's human rights ombudsman, Artek Begla Ryan, anywhere between 15 and 40 Armenians remain in the region. That includes those that still remain missing after the fighting began. The region had a pre-war population of 120,000, so that gives you an idea of just how many people have left and how little people are still there today. Azerbaijan has been arresting former government officials from Artsakh as they try to flee to Armenia We covered this last week as well. You guys are going to have to bear with me on some of these names. Former President Ariyek Harayutian was arrested by Azerbaijan's state security services and is currently in Baku to face trial. Two other former presidents, Bako Shakyan and Arkdai Gushkashian, have been arrested as well, as has David Ishkanyan, the former Speaker of Parliament. On the 2nd, an Armenian military truck transporting food came under fire by Azeri troops along the border. The truck was transporting food to Armenian positions along the border, which have been in a tense standoff with Azerbaijan since May 2021, when the latter crossed the border into Armenia in occupied positions inside the country, slaughtering Armenian prisoners of war in the process. One soldier was killed and two were injured in this attack. This cast doubt on Azerbaijan's claim that it simply wanted to restore its territorial integrity and would not promote Armenia into another war. Looking at Turkey, on the first two terrorists attacked the Ministry of the Interior in the capital city of Ankara. After exiting their vehicle, one attacker rushed security personnel and detonated a suicide vest. Two guards were injured in that explosion. The second attacker was shot dead before he was able to fire an anti-tank weapon that he was carrying. The Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, has claimed responsibility for the attack, saying that the two men were members of their immortal brigade. The PKK is a Kurdish nationalist leftist political organization and militant group that seeks to establish an independent nation for Kurds that would be called Kurdistan. The group was formed in 1978 and has waged war on the Turkish state ever since. The PKK has been involved in other wars in the region as well. It is currently designated as a terrorist group by Turkey, the U.S., 
Canada, the EU, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK. Authorities say that the two attackers came from Syria, where many PKK fighters operate across the border, sometimes mixing in with other Kurdish armed groups. The two men also killed a veterinarian before the attack and hijacked his vehicle. That's the one they used. As expected, Turkey responded to the attacks by launching dozens of airstrikes on what it says were PKK targets in northern Syria and Iraq. It should be noted that Turkey views the PKK and other Kurdish groups, such as the Syrian Kurdish People's Defense Unit, YPG, as one in the same. The strike campaign led to a confrontation between Turkey and the U.S., both NATO nations. On the 5th, a Turkish TAI Anka-S combat drone conducting strikes over Syria came too close to U.S. forces operating with YPG units in the area. The YPG is the dominant armed force in the Syrian Democratic Forces, a group of militias in northern Syria that partners with the U.S.-led coalition against ISIS. The Turkish Defense Ministry denied that they owned the drone. It was later determined that the drone belonged to Turkey's national intelligence organization, the MIT. It was conducting strikes over Hasaka, Syria, in a designated U.S.-restricted operating zone, by the time it was shot down by an American fighter jet, either an F-16 or F-35, it was loitering over U.S. troops. This is the first time that American troops shot down a Turkish aircraft. Lastly, on the 6th, Kurdish militants launched a rocket attack of their own on a Turkish military base in Syria, wounding five police officers and three soldiers, according to Turkish media. And clashes between the two sides continue. Looking at the Russo-Ukrainian war, we have a couple updates on the Wagner Group. Pavel Prigozhin, the son of deceased Wagner leader Yevgeny Prigozhin, is said to inherit his father's wealth and business empire in accordance with his will. Wagner-linked telegram channels claim that he is also taking control of the private military company and is negotiating with Rosgvardia, the Russian National Guard, in regards to Wagner rejoining the invasion of Ukraine. However, the Institute for the Study of War claims that there is currently no clear leader of Wagner Group. Also, recently, Russian President Vladimir Putin recently met with Andrei Trosev, a former commander and founding member of Wagner. Trosev goes by the call sign of Sadoy, and Putin announced in mid-July that he wanted Sadoy to replace Prigozhin as the leader of Wagner. During that meeting, Putin told Sadoy that he wanted him to oversee, quote, volunteer units operating in Ukraine, which may hint that he wants Sadoy taking over Wagner. I asked Cassis Belly for a comment on this. As you may know, he contributes to All Eyes on Fogner, a Twitter page that keeps tabs on the PMC. Cassis told me that Sadoy is an alcoholic with very little management skills in comparison to Prigozhin. If Putin wants him to be in charge, it likely means that the Kremlin is in control of Wagner already, and Sadoy is just a figurehead. Moving on, Dalton Medlin, an American veteran in the Ukrainian Armed Forces, was killed in action on September 27th. This was confirmed on October 1st by Medlin's company commander, Ryan O'Leary of Chosen Company, the 59th Mechanized Brigade. O'Leary said that he was leading a reconnaissance mission on a fortified Russian position. Medlin joined the company in January or February of this year. Also, Tanel Stinger Krigel, an Estonian citizen with the Ukrainian International Legion, was killed on October 1st. According to Estonian outlet Postims, he was killed by a Russian drone strike in Liman, Donetsk Oblast. Krigel is the second known Estonian to be killed in action since the invasion began in March. Ivo Jorak was killed in action while serving with the International Legion as well. Moving on, U.S. CENTCOM Central Command has announced that it has transferred approximately 1.1 million 
Iranian 7.62 millimeter rounds to the Ukrainian armed forces. This ammunition comes from U.S. Navy seizures of weapons shipments to Iran's Houthi proxies in Yemen. The U.S. government has been suspected of previously shipping seized Iranian origin weapons and ammunition to Ukraine as Chinese Type 65 assault rifles and W-85 heavy machine guns have made recent appearances in the conflict. Iranian HM-15 and HM-19 mortars have been seen used as well. Ukraine fielded none of these weapons before the invasion. This is the first time that the U.S. has acknowledged such donations of ammo, although it still has not acknowledged the donations of weapons. Moving on, this is coming from Sinotok, the Indo-Pacific desk chief for the Lethal Minds Journal. Early last month, Wang Fang, her husband Zhao Xiaoping, and other Chinese bloggers traveled to Russian-occupied Donetsk Oblast and Crimea to meet with several Russian officials. Wang is a well-known Chinese opera singer who is promoted by the Chinese Communist Party for singing pro-CCP, quote, red opera songs, and her husband is a Chinese nationalist blogger. Wang is also famous for taking part in some of her husband's videos and other social media posts that promote pro-CCP narratives. During the visit, the group also visited the city of Mariupol, which was captured by Russian forces after a three-month siege in May 2022. Zhao filmed Wang as she sang the World War II-era song Kadusha during the group's visit to the Donetsk Academic Regional Drama Theater in Mariupol, where a Russian airstrike killed approximately 600 civilians that were sheltering there during the siege last year. And lastly, late last month, a Russian Su-35S fighter jet was shot down over occupied Tokmak in Zaporizhia Oblast in a friendly fire incident by a Russian S-300 surface-to-air missile system. The pilot was killed in that accident, and new information from Russian social media site VK indicates that the deceased pilot was Major Alexei Belichenko, the deputy commander of the 929th Flight Test Center based in Astrakhan Oblast in Russia. Moving on to Germany, co-leader for the right-wing Alternative for Germany Party, otherwise known as the AFD, Tino Kupala was hospitalized after collapsing in the city of Ingolstadt. He was at a campaign rally in the city ahead of the state elections in Bavaria on Sunday. Preliminary reports suggest that Kupala may have been attacked with a syringe, but the exact cause of his collapse is not yet clear at this point. Moving on to the Indo-Pacific, looking at Australia. This is coming from Cole at Alcon Intel. Australia will soon be moving 800 troops from Adelaide in the south to Australia's northern regions as the military restructures to face the threat that the Chinese People's Liberation Army poses to the South Pacific. This is the largest restructuring within the Australian Defense Forces in a decade, and we'll see units move from general to specialist combat roles. About 500 troops will move to Townsville, 200 will go to Brisbane, and 100 will go to Darwin. Darwin is also the location of Marine Rotational Force Darwin, a force of U.S. Marines that deploy for six months each year as a forward-postured Marine Air Ground Task Force as the U.S. military shifts focus to the Indo-Pacific. Australian Deputy Prime Minister Richard Marles says that these changes are in response to the Defense Strategic Review, which found that the ADF was not fit for purpose and needed to be restructured to face rising tensions with the People's Republic of China. The 3rd Brigade is currently based in Townsville and will focus on roles such as amphibious operations, 
Townsville will also be home to all of the Army's armored vehicles and half of its helicopters. While Adelaide is losing troops in the short term, it should return to its current levels in 2028 and will be home to HIMAR systems and National Advanced Surface Air Missile Systems, also known as NASAMs. Moving on to Central Asia in the Middle East, looking at Kazakhstan, I missed this last week. President Kasim Jomart Tokayev, while on an official visit to Germany, said that his country supports EU decisions on sanctions against Russia for its invasion of Ukraine, and that Kazakhstan will not give Russia the chance to circumvent them. Kazakhstan is a nominal Russian ally, as it is a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, otherwise known as the CSTO, despite a Russian-led CSTO force bailing out Tokayev in the face of widespread civil unrest in January of last year, relations between the two countries have been deteriorating since the invasion began. This statement by Tokayev shows that Russia is losing influence among some of its CSTO allies. That can also be said with Armenia, which we have spoke about in the past. Looking at Israel, and just so you guys know, I am recording this at about 8 o'clock in the evening Pacific time on Saturday. So this should release on Atlas tomorrow morning, Sunday morning, and then I will put this out on my feed Monday morning. And I say that because the situation is still very, uh, very dynamic. Things are literally changing by the minute. In fact, I'm checking the news feed right now just to make sure that I have not missed anything. But obviously, we're talking about this new round of fighting that is going on in Israel. Again, I'm letting you know when I'm recording this because this will probably have changed by the time you listen to it. Things are changing quite literally by the minute. So on the morning of the 7th, Palestinian factions in Gaza launched multiple barrages of rockets into southern and central Israel, killing at least four and wounding a handful of others. At least 3,500 rockets have been fired overall, and it appears that Israel was caught off guard as a large number of rockets impacted before Iron Dome batteries could shoot them down in the first barrages last night. Compare that to the 4,400 rockets fired in the 11 days of fighting in 2021. That's a pretty insane amount. Palestinian terrorists used the rocket attacks as cover and were able to enter Israel at multiple points along the border. It is a holiday weekend in Israel, which likely contributed to their success. Hundreds of Palestinian gunmen managed to get into southern Israel. Squads of Palestinian terrorists were roaming around border towns and cities before being engaged by Israeli forces. People were executed, dragged out of their homes, kidnapped, and taken back to Gaza, and some military bases and border posts were overrun. At least 300 Israelis have been killed and 1,600 have been wounded. That is the current toll, again, as of about 8 o'clock in the evening Pacific time. That includes security force personnel and civilians. Palestinian government still control some border areas. Actually, scratch that. They do not really control areas, but there is still some fighting going on in border areas, and they are still holding an unknown number of Israelis hostage. According to Israeli network N12, at least 50 Israelis have been captured and taken back to Gaza. Hamas has confirmed the capture of Israeli Major General Nimrod Aloni, who was taken from his home this morning by Palestinian gunmen. Aloni is in command of the Israeli Defense Forces Depth Corps, which conducts operations inside Gaza. He was previously the commander of the Gaza Division until August of last year as well. Israel has denied this, among other kidnapped Israelis include women and children. 
One mother was on the phone with her 12 and 16 year old sons when they were taken. The spokesperson for Palestinian Islamic Jihad says that Israeli prisoners will be used to secure the release of the 7,000 Palestinians in Israeli prisons currently. IDF spokesperson Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari says that four divisions of the Israeli Defense Forces are currently being deployed to the Gaza border as we speak. They will be joining the already 31 battalions in the area. As I was saying, fighting is still ongoing in some border areas. However, most areas have been retaken. Israel's Fire and Rescue Services says that the head of the Kiryat Gat Station, Captain Shalom Saban, 60 years old, and the senior firefighter from the Netivot Station, Yevgeny Dalski, 34, were among those killed in the Hamas terrorist attack in southern Israel today. Both of them were posthumously promoted to deputy fire chief and sergeant firefighter, respectively. Also, the commanding officer of the Nahal Infantry Brigade, Colonel Yonatan Steinberg, was killed in a firefight with Palestinian militants in Karim Shalong. An open-air rave that was held in southern Israel was targeted as well. Palestinian gunmen opened fire on hundreds of people from all directions. We do not know exactly how many people were killed and wounded from that event alone. Israeli retaliatory airstrikes in Gaza have killed at least 232 people and wounded another 1,700, according to the Hamas-run health ministry. Israeli Energy Minister Yisrael Katz has also ordered the state-owned Israeli electric company to cut electricity to Gaza. Israel's full response is expected to be massive. Operation Iron Swords has been announced, and the Israeli Defense Forces is planning for a multi-front operation. They are also planning for a call-up of 100,000 reservists if necessary. I believe they have already called up 80,000 of those at this time. Former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett was even shown at a mobilization point for a reservist duty himself. Residents of seven areas in Gaza have recently received text messages from the Israeli government to evacuate to predetermined points in the anticipation of a military operation. In an address to the nation, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowed revenge for the attack and promised to destroy Hamas. He also urged Palestinians in Gaza to, quote, get out now. The issue is that people in Gaza have no way of leaving. It's very likely that any civilians in the area will be caught in crossfire between Israeli troops and Hamas if an operation is launched, which I personally expect it to be. Also, the IDF does expect Hezbollah to join in the war when a ground operation in Gaza begins. The Northern Command is being reinforced for this reason. We will take a quick break and we'll be back with Africa. All right, and we're back real quick, taking a look at Sudan. Not too many updates, but the RSF claimed that it captured the Sudanese army garrison at Wadashana, which is the military's last post along its border with the West Nile state. A number of civilians died in that assault as well, and the Sudanese armed forces repelled an assault of the headquarters of the 16th Infantry Division in the city of Niala on the 4th. Moving on to the Americas, Bolton from the Borderlands released on the 1st for the Americas desk. We covered El Chapo's son in U.S. federal court and Mexican cartels looking to hire U.S. veterans. Moving on to Haiti, the U.N. Security Council has finally approved the deployment of a multinational force to the country that will help the government combat the plague of gangs that Haiti faces. 
Kenya will lead this force and has previously pledged 1,000 law enforcement personnel to be assigned to it. So far, the Bahamas has pledged to send another 150 troops, and Jamaica and Antigua and Barbuda have signaled their willingness to join the force as well. The U.S. will not be deploying forces to this mission, but it will allocate $100 million in logistical and financial aid to support it. The multinational security support mission has been granted the authority to use, quote, all necessary measures, end quote, to carry out its mission. This may indicate that the force will have more lenient rules of engagement compared to previous UN peacekeeping missions. No timeline for the mission has been released. This comes roughly one year after Haiti requested foreign military assistance in fighting gangs. Moving on to Mexico, this is coming from Atheon News. Mexico has canceled the ownership of nine lithium mining operations by Chinese firm Gangfang Lithium. It bought the nine mining operations from British firm Bacanora Lithium for more than $260 million. That deal gave them the rights to the nine mines until 2060 to 2065. The firm has informed its investors that it has filed an appeal with the Secretariat of Economy, and it claims that the annulment of ownership violates national and international rights. Moving out of the U.S., got a presidential race update. These are averages from 538. Joe Biden's approval is at 39. That is down two points, and that is also the lowest his approval rating has been since July of last year. His disapproval is at 56. That is up two points from last week. Trump's favorability is at 41. His unfavorability is at 56. Those both remain the same from last week. Looking at the Democrat primary, Biden is at 61%. That is down one point from last week. That is continuing a slight downward trend. RFK Jr. is at 16. He is up one point. That is continuing a slight upward trend. Looking at the Republican primary, Trump is at 56. He is up one point. DeSantis is at 15. He is up two points. And Vivek Ramaswamy is at eight. He is up one point from last week as well. Got an update on the case with Senator Bob Menendez. Nadine Menendez, the wife of New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez, is getting some renewed attention brought to a deadly car crash that she was involved in back in December 2018. Both the senator and his wife are currently facing federal charges of bribery. Their indictment includes details regarding this crash, which is why it's in the headlines now, which happened before the two got married. Nadine was driving at night in Bogota, New Jersey, when she struck and killed a pedestrian, 49-year-old Richard Coop. Coop had just exited from the left side passenger door of an Uber when he was hit. After he was hit, Menendez remained in her car until police officers arrived and did not check to see if Coop was okay. She told a responding officer that he jumped on her windshield. She also denied the officer's request to see her phone, which is her right, but it's normally done in fatal collisions to see if the driver was texting when the accident occurred. The indictment against them claims that on September 6, 2019, an individual identified as Official 2 met with Senator Menendez in his office in New York, New Jersey, quote, in an attempt through advice and pressure to cause Official 2 to favorably resolve the investigation, end quote. Menendez was never formally charged in the accident. The indictment also claims that the luxury Mercedes-Benz Nadine received as an alleged bribe was meant to replace the Mercedes that she totaled when she killed Coop. Coop's family did sue Menendez and her insurance company in court, and Menendez was legally found to be at fault in the accident.
Moving on, a recent report regarding Iranian government influence operations in the U.S. has sparked some concerns, especially from at least 30 members of the U.S. Senate. This story has been heavily underreported. Recently, three Iranian Americans in influential positions were found to be a part of the Iranian Experts Initiative, an Iranian influence ring to foster favorable views of the current regime in power in the United States. The program began in 2014 during negotiations between the U.S. government and Iran on the JCPOA, otherwise known as the Iran nuclear deal. The program was to forge connections with well-known second-generation Iranian-American academics and researchers in the U.S. in order for them to use their influence to push regime talking points to the U.S. government and American academia. The program was run by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. The members of this ring met with their Iranian handlers abroad, and some of them even pledged allegiance to the Iranian government. Over time, at least three members of this ring became top aides to U.S. officials while working for the Iranian regime. This includes the aide for Robert Malley, the Biden administration's special envoy to Iran and the go-to person for Iran policy. Malley was placed on unpaid leave in late June and had his security clearance suspended for an unknown reason. The administration has refused to comment on the reasoning, but many have speculated that this suspension may be connected to his aide's work for the Iranian government. Mali is known for favoring a more open and less hostile approach to relations with Iran. One of the other aides is Ariane Tabatabai, who is currently the chief of staff to the assistant secretary of defense for special operations and low intensity conflicts. Say that three times. In a letter to Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, 30 U.S. Senators said that Tabatabai agreed to join the influence ring in 2014 and checked in with Iran's foreign ministry before attending policy events. She was also dissuaded from attending a conference on Israel and wanted the Iranian regime's input on a congressional briefing that she was invited to give in 2014. In 2021, she was appointed as the senior advisor to the Office of the Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. Again, say that three times. A number of Iranian dissidents expressed concern that she'd spent years promoting pro-regime talking points when this promotion happened. That same year, after several members of Congress requested a review of her security clearance specifically, the administration dismissed these allegations against her as, quote, smears and slander. Tabatabai holds a top-secret-slash-compartmentalized security information clearance, which is one of the most exclusive levels of a security clearance that you could get in the U.S. government. Despite that information that has been released about her working for the Iranian regime, she still maintains her senior Pentagon position and still has her security clearance to this day. Moving on, California Governor Gavin Newsom has followed through on his promise to place a black woman in Senator Dianne Feinstein's open seat now that she has passed. He appointed LaFonza Butler as California's new senator, who has since been sworn in. Butler is a Democratic strategist, former labor union leader, and the president of Emily's List, a political action committee that seeks to get pro-abortion Democrats elected. Butler does not live in California. She currently lives in Maryland. Well, actually, scratch that. She lives in California now that she's been sworn in as a senator. She didn't before. On the second, Congressman Henry Cuellar, a Democrat from Texas, was carjacked by three armed men in Washington, D.C. He wasn't injured, and his car was later found. Also on the second, North Dakota State Senator Doug Larson, a Republican, his wife, 
and their two kids were killed in a Utah plane crash. Larson was piloting the plane. The cause of the crash isn't yet clear. On the third, U.S. Representative Matt Gates, the Republican from Florida, filed a motion to remove House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, the Republican from California, from his position. Gates claimed that McCarthy recently made a secret deal with the White House regarding Ukraine funding. Gates has never been a fan of McCarthy and has been threatening to file a motion to remove him since January. The House moved on the motion on the 4th, and in a vote of 216 to 210, Representative McCarthy was removed as the House Speaker for the first time in U.S. history. Representative Patrick McHenry, the Republican from North Carolina, is the acting Speaker currently. McCarthy responded to this vote by saying that this motion was personal for Gates for some reason. He also confirmed that he will not be running for Speaker again. It isn't clear who is most likely to become Speaker. There was a little bit of talk about some congressmen voting for former President Donald Trump to become Speaker. Actually, at least three congressmen have actually supported that. Uh, the first one is Representative Troy Nels, Republican of Texas. You also have Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia and Greg Stubbe of Florida. Now, to be the Speaker of the House, uh, you actually do not have to be a member of Congress. You could actually be anybody. I, I mean, technically, I could get voted in as the Speaker of the House, right? So that is why Trump's name was brought up. Uh, obviously, he's not going to be the next speaker. But yeah, kind of just interesting. Figured I'd uh, throw that out there for you guys. As of right now, the only two that are actually interested in the seat are Jim Jordan of Ohio and Steve Scalise of Louisiana. The House will vote for a speaker on the 11th. And we'll keep you guys up to date as far as that goes. And on the 6th, got this last story of the week, former U.S. Army Sergeant Joseph Schmidt was arrested on the allegations that he retained classified information and tried to pass it on to Chinese intelligence agents. Schmidt, 29 years old, served from 2015 to 2020, spending most of that time at Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington. He worked in intelligence and had a top-secret security clearance. Prosecutors say that he made multiple alarming Google searches in 2020, including, quote, countries with most negative relations with U.S., quote, how did specified U.S. person defect, and, quote, Chinese embassy Istanbul, and, quote, can you be extradited for treason, end quote. He also allegedly made a 23-page Microsoft Word document titled, quote, high-level secrets in Chinese, while the rest of the document was in English. He apparently made another document titled, quote, important information to share with the Chinese government, end quote. He also sent emails to the Chinese consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, offering his services as an interrogator to the consulate. In another email to the Chinese consulate, he said, quote, I have a current top secret clearance and would like to talk to someone from the government to share this information with you if that is possible, end quote. After leaving the army, Schmidt moved to Turkey for one month before moving to China. His first time back in the U.S. was this past Friday when he was arrested in San Francisco after arriving from Hong Kong. He has been charged with attempting to deliver national defense information and retention of national defense information. He faces decades in prison if convicted. That is all I have for you guys this week. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You can find this on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. We are also on Telegram, same name. 
please consider supporting us again on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyze educate or at ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well. And I will see you guys soon.